Good evening, everybody. Um, first of all, um, it's a very good idea to turn your phone to silent, please. Um, but on the other hand, if you turn it to silent when one of your speakers is trying to phone you up, it's um, less helpful. But from, from now on, it would be great to um, have them on silent. On the other hand, I'm not sure, have we got a hashtag? Um, yes, we have a hashtag, which is hashtag LSE children. So you are welcome to tweet and do whatever one does with hashtags. Um, uh, but please do it um, quietly. Um, so um, welcome. My name's John Hills, and uh, it's a great pleasure to, in, to welcome you here this evening on behalf of both the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion and the new LSE International uh, Inequalities Institute. And a welcome to all of those of you watching this um, on the podcast afterwards. Um, um, I'm glad you were able to join us wherever you are. And if you enjoyed this lecture, um, please also look at the Inequality Institute's website for the um, previous lectures given by uh, Tony Atkinson, uh, Joe Stiglitz, and the symposium involving uh, Tomar Piketty. Um, so as you will see, uh, we have a very distinguished line of speakers um, to whom Jane this evening can only add luster. Um, there are, I should say, copies of her book for sale, her and her colleagues' book, because it has four authors, um, for sale outside. Um, if you would like Jane to sign a copy of that, and indeed uh, one of her co-authors, Liz Washbrook, is here this evening as well, um, maybe you could join us in the reception we will be having afterwards um, and, and um, grab Jane up there afterwards. Um, that reception, we're not allowed to have receptions in this building, so that will be up on the fifth floor of the old building of the LSE. It's only a few minutes' walk. Um, essentially, to get there, you just walk up the Aldwych, turn right into Houghton Street, and go as far as you can before you reach the demolition works. <laughs> and, then you, and then you go in, up into the, uh, the main entrance, and the lift will take you to the fifth floor, and then we can carry on the discussion up there afterwards. Now, Jane's going to be talking for about 50 minutes, and then we'll have the, the discussion will open... Um, with Lee Elliott Major from the Sutton Trust, and we'll aim to be finishing around about 7.45, um, something like that. Um, as well as welcoming you, it's just a huge pleasure to welcome Jane here tonight. Um, Jane, you'll know from the, um, from the adverts, is the Compton Foundation Centennial Professor of Social Work for Prevention of Children's and Youth Problems. So basically making sure that there are fewer children left behind is her job description. She's also um, a very long-term friend of the LSE and of CASE um, as a visiting professor with us for quite a few years. Her previous books have been landmarks um, in their areas, and I'm sure this one will be as well. Um, as you will know, or if you don't know her already, you will see that Jane, in collaboration with her colleagues, is a formidable scholar. But she is also intensely involved in policy discussion and advice of both sides of the Atlantic. I well remember our former then Chancellor, Gordon Brown. On one occasion, he turned to a very senior colleague that is Tony Blair, and said, you have stolen my effing budget. Much more happily, there was another occasion when um, Gordon turned to Jane and said, that's what my budget will be on, after a presentation she'd given in the Treasury. I'm sure that 
what she's describing this evening, the agenda she and her colleagues set out, will be the background to budgets, uh, not just in this country and, and in the USA, but in other countries as well, I hope, for many years to come. So thank you very much for coming, Jane. Um, Thank you very much, John, for that um, sort of overwhelming introduction. So I'm a bit stopped in my tracks, and the other thing stopping me in my tracks is I didn't ask how to uh, do these slides. So there you go. There they are. Um, So that that did momentarily stop me in my tracks. Um, Thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Um, Please don't be daunted when you see that I have 45 slides because I'm going to talk really fast. And so we're just going to whiz through uh, the book, you know, one slide per minute. It's really going to be okay. Um, So I'm going to talk about this book, Too Many Children Left Behind. Um, We're trying to learn from different countries about socioeconomic status gaps, SES gaps, and children's achievement. And there are four of us on this book, uh, Bruce Bradbury from Australia, Miles Korak from Canada, myself from the U.S., and Liz Washbrook from the U.K., and Liz is here tonight. So if there are any penetrating questions about the U.K. context, I'm going to be referring them to the front row. Um, And I want to thank our many funders and Russell Sage who published the book. Um, So we're really motivated by three questions. So how large is the achievement gap between children from low and high SES families? When does this gap emerge? How much is already there at school entry? How much develops after school entry? And what can we learn from different countries to make children's outcomes more equal? Uh, More broadly put, does it have to be this way? Do we have to have the kind of inequalities that we see, especially in our countries? Um, I don't think I need to do much by way of motivation. Uh, We were particularly uh, interested in the work that Sean Reardon had done in the United States showing the growing gap between children from low and high income families, the growing achievement gap. And um, Sarah McClanahan had done work on diverging destinies. Robert Putnam, more recently in his book, Our Kids, talks about diverging destinies between children whose families have a lot of resources and children whose families have less resources. So we wanted to understand how these, how these uh, situation compares across countries. Uh, the four of us had done some earlier work that was supported by the Sutton Trust looking at SES gaps in school readiness, so gaps even before children start school. And what we'd found quite clearly was that these gaps are larger in the U.S. than in peer countries. We also know from international test score data like PISA and adult literacy tests that there's much more inequality in the U.S. in adolescence and in adulthood. But what we didn't know was what was happening in the intervening years and how inequality in early childhood was carrying through. So in this project, we follow cohorts of children from our four countries, and we're looking at SES gaps at three common time points. First at age five, when children are just on the cusp of starting school, then around age seven or nine, when they're in primary school, and then again at age 11, when they're on their way to secondary school. For the U.S. only, we also have some data at age 14. So these are the data sets we use, and I'm going to gloss over these, which is really terribly unfair, but in the interest of time, I will. Um, They're the perfect data sets to analyze because they're all cohort studies, nationally representative, large samples with lots of data about child development and family background. But it took about a year for us to harmonize the data across the countries. So this is not like PISA, where all the children are given the same test in one administration. 
Uh, so this is really us doing the best job we can to make them comparable. Um, we're going to use parental education as our main measure of SES. I'm sure all of you know there's lots of different ways of measuring socioeconomic status. Um, economists tend to use family income. Sociologists often use parental education. Sometimes they use measures like parental occupation. You can argue for each of those. Um, in our case, we decided to use uh, parental education because uh, it's a very good proxy for families' permanent income, their long-run resources. Whereas if we used income from just a point in time, that's pretty transitory. It's pretty noisy. It may not give us the best measure of families' long-run resources. Income also is measured differently across our countries, and it's a real beast to try to make it comparable, whereas education is more comparable. And also there's just this face value where all of us, it makes sense to us why children whose parents have more education might start out school more ready than children whose parents had less education themselves. The question, though, is why would that be different across countries? If there is something of an advantage in having a more educated parent, shouldn't that be roughly similar across countries? Why would it be different in different places? Um, so we define families as low SES if they have just secondary school or less. Medium SES is something beyond secondary school, but not a university degree. So think about some further education, some higher education, some qualification, but not a university degree. And then high SES will be a university degree or more. Um, having now made the case for education, I'll say also that we did do everything by family income, and the results are similar. So the book, you'll see, it's, it's quite a light book. It's a paperback book. I think it's about 200 pages or something. I mean, it's very bright and breezy. It's very readable. There's then an appendix that's about 300 pages that's online on the Russell Sage website. So all of these extra results are on the, in the appendix. Um, so you can go to the Russell Sage website, and you can find all the results by family income, and you can find how we coded everything. And so for those of you who are really, you know, detail-oriented, you're going to have a great time with the appendix. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, so now let's start talking about the findings. Uh, we've got three striking findings about resources for children. The first is Canada. They stand out in having more family resources, and you can see it right off the bat in parental education. So this is the distribution of parental education among our children um, starting school around the age of five, dividing families into low, medium, and high education. You can see right off the bat that in Canada, the modal category, the largest bar, is that middle education category. So they've got something beyond uh, secondary school or high school education. That's half of the Canadian parents, plus the ones, the 27%, who've got some higher, you know, who've got a university degree. So only about 22% of children in Canada have a low-educated parent. Look at the other three countries. In the other three countries, the modal category, the, the largest single category for children, is to have a low-educated parent. So that's, you know, that's going to be a challenge right off the bat. Then even within SES groups, we're going to find more inequality. Um, you know, family resources are going to be skewed by SES in all four of our countries, but this is going to be much more so in the United States. So I'm going to show you a series of graphs, and in each of them, you're going to see that not only are the levels uh, lower or worse in the United States, but also the, the, the gradient by SES is going to be steeper in the United States. So this one has to do with children born to a teen mother. So on the left-hand side of the graph, 
the, on the right-hand side of the graph for you, among the, the children with high-educated parents, only 3% of them were teen parents in the U.S., but among those with low-educated parents, that goes up to 21%. So that's the gradient, that rise from 3% to 21%. So we have more teen parents in the U.S., it's more socially graded. You can see that the, the country that comes in second place in terms of inequality is the U.K., and this is going to be a constant refrain throughout these slides. The U.S. is by far the worst case when it comes to almost every measure of inequality of resources, but often the U.K. is not that far behind. Uh, here we have children living with both biological parents. Uh, there's an SES gradient here. The U.S. has the lowest share of children living with biological parents, both parents, and the steepest gradient followed by the U.K. Um, Immigration, a uh, really interesting factor. Um, here the UK actually has a pretty equal share of immigrant parents, whether you're low, medium, or high SES. About one in five children has an immigrant parent, regardless of SES, so they're really evenly distributed. Not the case in the US. In the US, the immigrant parents are concentrated in the low SES group. So those children not only have parents with less education, but parents who are adjusting to a new country who may not speak English proficiently or may not speak English at home. Australia and Canada are just the reverse. To the extent that immigrants are concentrated anywhere, they're concentrated in the high SES group because of their selective immigration policies. This is poor or fair health. This is having a mother in poor or fair health. This is one place where the UK actually has worse levels than the US, but a very similar SES gradient. This is no surprise. We know there's a big gradient in health. Um, but it's, it's interesting that it's present in the US and UK and not the other two countries. Um, let me skip incomes for a sec. Uh, this is uh, parents reading to children. I think this is my favorite graph in the book because for me this was a big aha moment. There's a gradient in reading in every country, but look at those Canadians. I had no idea how bookish those Canadians are. <laughs> you, look at the, you look at the low SES Canadians, they are reading as much to their children as the high SES American parents. That's what I mean by bookish, right? So something is going on up there in Canada. Um, and then here's income. Uh, of course, income is correlated with SES. Of course, high SES families, high educated parents have higher incomes. But the gradient is steepest in the United States. And it's happening at the top, where the top incomes are pulling apart. And it's happening at the bottom, where the low incomes are pulled down. And right behind us, in second place for inequality, is the UK. So unfortunately, we've got the most income inequality in the US, but our safety net does the least. So this is the one graph in the book that we didn't produce ourselves. This is from some earlier work by Bruce Bradbury and Marcus Yanti. This shows poverty among children both before and after the safety net gets involved. So in all of our countries, child poverty is around 30% or higher and this is contemporary with our cohorts. This is not today. This is like 2000, 2001, contemporary with our cohorts. So the bar on the right is poverty before taxes and transfers, before the government does anything. So this is, this is driven by the makeup of the families, the labor market, all of that. Um, after government gets involved, after the safety net, after taxes and transfer, you can see that poverty's cut in about half. In, in three of these countries, 
right? In the UK, it comes down from almost 40% down to 21%. Australia, 32% down to 17 Canada, from almost 30% down to 16 You get the picture. Poverty is being cut in half, except in the United States, right, where poverty is cut by only five percentage points. So, so not only do we have more inequality of resources, but we then have less of an active safety net that's mitigating that inequality. Okay, so then probably not surprisingly, we're going to find that when we start looking at children's achievement at school entry, where would you expect us to find the most inequality? It's going to be the U.S. Who's going to be in second place for the second most inequality? It's going to be the U.K. And who are going to be the sort of good performers in terms of the least inequality? It's going to be Australia and Canada. And that really lines up with what we've seen for income inequality and what we've seen for inequality of resources. So the total height of the bar here, uh, the U.S., that adds up to be one full standard deviation. That's the total gap in children's reading readiness at school entry between children with low SES parents and high SES parents. That's a full standard deviation gap. We get pushed all the time to talk about, well, so what does that mean? I think with an academic audience, I don't have to say what a full standard deviation gap means. We get pushed to talk about it in months of development, and I really don't like to, to use that number because it depends on how old the kids are, but also because that number is huge. So I'm just going to say it's more than a year of development. That's all I'm going to say. It, it's huge. A standard deviation is a big, big gap. Uh, the UK is not that far behind, 0.8 of a standard deviation, right, if you add up that whole bar. Australia and Canada, about half of, or two-thirds of a standard deviation. And then you can see in the bars, the bottom part of the bar is the gap between the low and the medium group, and then the top part of the bar is the gap between the medium and the high group. So you can see the gap is not all at the bottom. There's something going on also between the medium and the top uh, in all four of the countries. So we're mainly focused in the book on in the gaps in cognitive development because those gaps are the largest. But we did also want to take a look at behavior and health because school readiness is not just about children's reading or math readiness. It's also about their behavioral readiness. It's also about their health. So um, this is a, what this, these graphs show you is a pattern that we saw in our earlier work, work that Liz and I had done earlier for the Sutton Trust, looking at the U.S. and the U.K., um, the surprising finding was that this is the one place where we find more inequality in the UK than in the US. So as you can see from these bars, uh, the gap in attention problems, the gap in conduct problems, the country that stands out that as having the most inequality between low and high SES families is the UK. And honestly, we're still trying to figure out why that's the case, because it is different from the rest of the patterns. Um, this is reported by the mom. And so whether it's um, low SES moms having a particularly negative view of their children's behavior in the UK, or whether it's that low SES moms in the US have a particularly rosy view of their children's behavior, something's going on that um, the low SES moms in the US are reporting smaller, are reporting better behavior and it's leading to smaller gaps. Um, 
So that's one thing to take away from this is that the gaps are larger in the UK, but also these gaps are much smaller than the kind of gaps we were looking at for cognitive development. Those things were one standard deviation, 0.8 of a standard deviation. These are more like a quarter or a half of a standard deviation. And then, um, and then these are the outcomes for child health. This is whether the child is in poor or fair health or whether the child is obese, again, at around age five. And here we see the more familiar pattern where the gap is largest in the U.S., followed by the U.K., and then the other countries really trailing uh, far behind with much more equal outcomes. Um, so one thing you might think about is, um, well, what about preschool? I mean, there are these massive gaps um, at school entry, um, especially for the U.S., um, would, wouldn't preschool play some kind of role here? And this is where our countries really divide, uh, and here the U.K. really pairs up with Australia. So at the top of this graph, you have um, women's employment graphed against uh, the percent in preschool, and the top of the graph is uh, the, the plot for Australia and the U.K., and there you see that working hours increase based on SES. The women who are more educated tend to work more. Um, but rates of preschool enrollment are high for everybody because there's universal preschool. I know this is a no-brainer for you, but for in the U.S. we find this interesting because we don't have universal preschool. We're still uh, working on that. Um, so at the bottom of the graph, then you have Canada and the U.S. where we have sort of private, non-universal preschool and much lower rates of preschool enrollment and more skewed by SES. And in blue, the, the, the plot points for the U.S. are pretty interesting because you've got um, the medium SES women really looking different, so they're actually working the most hours but not using the most preschool. So our Australian colleague, Bruce Bradbury, looked at this and, and was very struck by the pattern and talked about this middle-class squeeze where these medium SES families in the U.S. are working long hours but actually using less preschool because they can't afford preschool, but they're not qualifying for subsidized preschool. So um, that may be part, explaining part of what's going on for the families in the middle. Okay, so we've seen these patterns of inequality at school entry, but what we really wanted to do in this book was follow children through school and see what happens as they move through school. Um, so what we find is that children in the U.S. not only start school more unequal, they're also going to finish school more unequal. So this, again, is the graph at age five. And earlier I showed you just the results for reading, and now we're going to bring in math where we have it because we've got math for some countries in some years. So for the sake of completeness, we're going to bring in the math where we can. And so interestingly, for the U.S., it doesn't matter if you're looking at reading or math. It's a standard deviation gap at school entry for either one of those. Um, the other countries obviously are the same because it's still reading. Here's the graph for children age 7 or 9. Hmm, this could be age 5. It looks almost, looks almost identical, right? And here they are at age 11. And again, it looks almost identical. Uh, so these patterns are really holding up through the school years. Uh, you know, we're going to find, even at age 11, we're going to find the U.S. the most unequal, followed by the U.K. Well, Australia starts creeping up here. Partly they're changing tests at age 11, and we're discovering more inequality on those tests. So um, Canada looks, again, more equal. 
So I just want to I just want to be careful when I talk about what's going on in the school years. Uh, schools certainly are not reducing inequality. There's not much evidence that inequality is falling in the school years. Although maybe something's going on in the UK. So remember, in the UK, it was 0.8 at school entry, and at age 11, it's point it's less than 0.7. So maybe something is going on in primary school in the UK, and in other work, we've sort of seen hints of that. Um, but they're not doing a lot to reduce inequality. But not everything that happens in the school years can be laid at the doorstep of schools, can be the responsibility of schools. Whatever out-of-school factors are influencing children, and we've ta talked about a lot of these resource issues and income issues and the inadequate safety net, these things don't go away when children start school. Children are still being influenced by these things. So something's going on in schools, but something's also going on out of schools. Uh, so out of schools, um, I was showing you earlier some figures, you know, for book reading. Um, the other thing children might do in their free time, we like to think that children are reading books all the time, uh, but children also watch a lot of television, so um, especially for school-age kids. And boy, especially in the United States, do we watch a lot of television, our kids. So this is the share of children who are watching television three or more hours a day. So you don't have a lot of time to be studying when you're watching television three or more hours a day. And this is true of a pretty substantial share of US children and very socially graded. Um, I was looking at these this morning and noticing how good the UK looks. So I don't know what you're doing. I mean, so, you know, go UK. So Canada, they're reading books. And in the UK, your kids are not watching television. So this is, this is a good thing. Now, Stephen's muttering, yeah, they're probably on the computer. I don't know what they're doing. But they're, no <laughs> they're not telling the truth. No, I think children everywhere either are telling the truth or aren't. But, um, yeah. Um, one of the, you know, one in-school factor uh, that we would be concerned about in terms of inequality would be separation of children, streaming of children, ability grouping. There's lots of different ways tracking, separating children to give them substantially different instruction. So one extreme form of that would be grade repetition, retention. Um, I guess this grade repetition or retention is almost unknown in the UK. It's a very small share of children, and so it's actually not collected in the data set. So this is the Millennium Cohort Study, and in that, in that study, uh, we didn't have data on whether children were retained because it's, it's quite rare. Um, in Australia and Canada, it's also pretty rare. This would be children with really serious learning issues. Um, that's not the case in the U.S. Uh, holding children back, having them repeat a grade is pretty common. This is the share of children who've been retained at least once by fifth grade. Lots of children are retained more than once. So children don't master the material. Instead of working harder to teach the material, they're held back to repeat the grade again with the same instruction. So they didn't get it the first time around. They're given the same instruction, and they just fall permanently behind. And then we have children who are old for grade when they get to secondary school, and it's very difficult for them to be motivated and complete. And again, it's very socially graded. So this was probably the clearest signal we had of ability grouping and tracking. Um, OK, so. So there's no evidence that these gaps are uh, narrowing during the school years, 
But you can't really just eyeball what the raw gaps are at each age group because we really want to trace out trajectories of children's development through the school years. And um, the U.S. data are really extremely well suited to do that. Uh, so with the U.S. data, we're able to measure outcomes in a comparable metric on many more occasions than these three occasions that are in common that we've been using for the rest of the book. So I think it's in Chapter 6 of the book we kind of step just into the U.S. data in a very deep way. And I say we step into the data in a very deep way, but honestly, Liz stepped into the data in a very deep way. Um, and really extended what something that will be familiar, I think, to many of you, the kind of graphs that Leon Feinstein did looking at children's trajectories from different groups and really sort of pushed the boundary on that. Um, so with Liz's leadership, because I really want to give her credit for this, um, we followed children to age 14. And what, um, what we find is that the SES gap is actually widening. And so the easiest way for us to see this is... Children enter school around age five with a range of test scores. Some children come in high, some children come in medium, some children come in low. There's a whole array of test scores. And what we really want to do is compare children who had the identical test score, identical test score, but came from different SCS families. That's going to be the best way to tell if the gaps are widening or narrowing by SCS. And we could do that for an array of points in the test score distribution, but then the graph would get very messy. So what we do instead is we just pick out three points on the test score distribution, a high score, an average score, and a low score. So the high score is going to be children who were a standard deviation above the average at school entry, average score, and then children who were standard deviation below. And within each of those little score groups, Imagine we've got like three little children sitting together and they've got exactly the same score on the test. And one of them's from high SES and one's medium and one's low SES. Then we're going to follow exactly those three children right through to age 14 with these multiple test points. And we're going to throw away their first score because their first score might be noisy, right? Because we're worried about measurement error. So we're going to throw away the first score because luckily for us, in this survey, they tested children in the fall of kindergarten and again in spring. So fall of reception, spring of reception. So we're going to throw, we're not going to throw away the fall score. We're going to use it to instrument for the spring score. Yeah, that'll mean something to some of you and won't mean something to others of you. So we're going to clean up the measurement error. We're going to start in the spring so they're a little bit older than five. And we're going to follow them to age 14. And what we're going to see is among those children with the highest, te highest test scores coming in, our little group of three over here, you were the high scorers. We really had high hopes for you. Uh, the one of you that was high SES, you in the box, Miss Box, um, you're staying high right through 14, right? Mr. Cross, um, who was the, from the medium-educated family, you're kind of losing ground. You know, you came in with a high score, but you're not doing so well anymore. And Miss Triangle, who had a low-educated parent, has really lost ground by age 14, right? She's now overlapping into the children who came in with just average test scores. So those of you who know the sort of famous Leon Feinstein graph, it's a similar kind of idea. Um, but done, we think, in, in, oh, in such a great way, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And likewise, the children who came in with the average scores, you see them pulling apart by SES. Um, and then likewise, these children here at the bottom, luckily the children who came in with low test scores, they all you know, sort of gained something in reading. But boy, the, the high SES children really gain a lot more, and they're really pulling away, with the low, S, low SES children really getting sort of stuck down there at the bottom. Um, we can see something similar with math. They don't pull as far apart in math. Um, and this is similar to, or to other research that shows SES having really a stronger impact on children's learning in reading than it does in math. Um, and you can sort of think about the family influences and all the things that families do outside of school, the sort of culture stuff, reading books, family, family dinner conversations. SE, high SES families are able to promote learning in lots of ways, but maybe less so in math than they are in reading. Because even high SES families at some point kind of take a step away from the math, right? And say, well, that sounds really interesting, dear, but they're kind of fuzzy on the details. Uh, so similar pattern in math, but not as pronounced. Um, so we were able to do this especially in the U.S. because we've got by far the best data, but to the extent that we could, we replicated it for the other countries. And that was that we could, look, we could do this kind of analysis, not exactly this, not quite as good, but something similar we could do in the UK and in um, Australia. The Canadian data really weren't um, adequate to support this. So we only have it for the three countries. And what we're really interested in here is figuring out of the SES gap that we see in reading at age 11, how much of this was already present at school entry and how much develops during the school years. So if you had asked us before we did this book, I would have said, you know, about half of it is there at school entry and about a half develops during the school years. That was kind of the received wisdom. That's the received wisdom. And based on some earlier work in the United States on other types of gaps, that turned out to be wrong. So it turns out that the majority of the gap is there at school entry. It's already there before children even set foot in school. So just in terms of allocating responsibility and what policymakers should do, that's the biggest finding, right? That's the biggest finding. Um, in the case of reading in the states, 70% is attributed to initial differences at school entry. Only about 30% of the age 11 gap uh, has to do with subsequent differences developing. In math, it's about 60-40, but still the majority is there at school entry. In the UK, it's almost 60-40. In Australia, it's 66-34. I don't think we would want to make much of the differences across the countries. I think the point is that across all three countries, the majority of the gap is already there at school entry. So in terms of what you do about it as a policymaker, I think the implications are just crystal clear. You've got to do something in early childhood, and then you've got to keep doing something during the school years. Okay, so then what do we do about it? What are the policy directions? So um, I should have said at the start, the four of us um, sort of unbelievably got to spend a year together at the Russell Sage Foundation in New York. So um, we were uh, there as visiting fellows, and the idea was that the four of us would go to seminars together and go to conferences and read papers. And I think we had, we had something like a 20-page syllabus of readings on all the sort of research on educational interventions and things to reduce inequality, which we actually dutifully read. 
the Russell Sage librarians got all of these papers and books for us and made copies. And they got, you know, we read the Coleman report. I mean, we read stuff that I've never read before. It was really fabulous. Um, and we also had a conference where we had people come from all over the world, including Lee came over for this, to talk to us about what can you do about achievement gaps. Uh, because we were really coming at this from inequalities, from, from understanding family and children, but we really wanted to intersect with the education world and the rest of the policy world and make sure that what we were doing was really grounded in the evidence. So as much work as we put into the data analysis, we also put an awful lot of work into the policy end. Um, and so these are the sort of three big domains that we, you know, we concluded were important if we were going to try to close these kinds of gaps. So the first, obviously, is that you've got to provide more support for early learning. If the majority of the gap, 50, 60, 70 percent of the gap is already there at school entry, you've got to do something in early childhood. Um, but that, you know, that's a lot easier said than done. So what do we know about proven interventions in early childhood? And the two things that really stand out are parenting programs, and not, not all parenting programs, and not the run-of-the-mill parenting programs, but there's a, a handful of evidence-based parenting programs, things like nurse-family partnership, reading programs, that have been shown to improve parent behavior in such a way as to improve children's reading or math scores. Um, and then the second in early childhood would be universal high-quality preschool for three- and four-year-olds. And I have to include this because this is still a live issue in the United States. And again, you know, arguably, it's still a live issue here because of those words, high-quality. So it's not just universal preschool, but it's, it's got to be high-quality if it's going to de deliver developmental benefits. Um, the second broad area is raising family incomes for poor and near-poor families. Uh, there is a serious problem with family resources. We saw those SES gradients and family resources. There's an issue with the safety net, and there's really good evidence, including evidence that some folks here at CASE have done, um, showing that there are causal effects of income on child development, and especially in low-income families. So we've got in low levels of resources in the low SES families, and we've got some evidence that resources would actually make a difference. Uh, so that's a second area of recommendations. And then third, obviously, I mean, I said earlier, we don't want to put all the blame on the schools because children are arriving already very unequal, and they're still being influenced by these out-of-school factors. But still, come on, this is the school's job. Uh, the schools have to be responsible for reducing inequalities. Uh, so they've got to recruit, support, and compensate effective teachers. They've got to implement rigorous curricula. And they've got to set high expectations and provide support for low-achieving students. They can't just relegate them to separate tables, separate classes, hold them back. Um, if we don't have expectations for low-achieving kids, they're never going to achieve. Uh, so we can't just leave them behind. So I'll say a little bit more about each of these. It looks like we're, we're doing so well for time. So John wanted me to finish by 7.25. I'm doing really, I said I would talk really fast, and I have. Um, so in the area of more support for early learning, as I said, evidence-based parenting programs, especially for parents with infants and toddlers, because really you can't wait till three. You know that from here. The minute that you roll out universal preschool for three- and four-year-olds, 
then you discover there's already a lot of inequality at age three. And so then you move to universal preschool for two-year-olds, but then children, what about children age zero and one? So there's just tremendous scope for parenting programs. And then um, you, know, you know better than we do in the States the role of universal high-quality preschool for threes and fours. Uh, we're getting there in the states. I think we maybe now have about 28% of our three of our four-year-olds in some kind of universal preschool. We consider that a big accomplishment, but uh, 28% is not 100%. So we're so far behind every other country. Um, uh, income supports. Uh, we've got to do something to raise family incomes for the poor and near poor. Uh, low SES parents cannot do a good job of investing in their kids and supporting their learning if they're worrying about money all the time. If they're going through tremendous instability with housing and income and employment, there's got to be some measure of security and stability. Um, so this is through things like raising minimum wages. Um, until this morning, this slide said expanding supports for low-income families through tax credits in the United States, and I had some details about the United States because I knew that you had a very generous system of tax credits that was already established, and there was no issue there, right? And then I started reading the papers. I, I just got here last night, so I started reading the papers this morning. Like, oh, my God. So uh, I changed the slide. Uh, so apparently there is a need to maintain and expand supports for low-income families, things like tax credits, in more than one country. Uh, so maybe especially here, um, you know, you, you've had such a great track record here of expanding the tax credits. And I documented this in excruciating detail. Um, my book before this was Britain's War on Poverty. And I have these appendix tables that show what the budgets are for different families who work different hours with the addition of the benefits. And you can see families being lifted out of poverty with the tax credits. And you can see what difference it makes. And um, so, oh boy, what a shame what's going on currently. So, so I'm with you, and I've changed the slide. Um, <laughs> Uh, for us, the food and nutrition programs are also a live issue in the states. This is a big part of our safety net. We have food stamps, we have school meals, we have uh, income food supplements for families with young children. These are under some threat. Uh, they were expanded greatly during the Great Recession and kept a lot of families out of poverty. A huge untold success story, uh, the way that these benefit programs protected families during the recession. But some of those were temporary measures and are under threat. And then um, I have to talk about paid family and medical leave because we don't have that in the United States. Um, so John and I were talking earlier about paid family leave is just taking off in the United States. Um, we didn't used to talk about it. We're, we're now the only industrialized country that doesn't have paid family leave. I'm talking about maternity leave and paternity leave. We, ha we do not have it. Australia just implemented it. We're now the only country. And um, Hillary Clinton put it on the table in the Democratic debate with um, Bernie Sanders jumping on board behind her. He kind of mangled it. He said, well, I support paid, um, um, paid medical, paid family, paid, paid medical family. He kind of got it all jumbled up, but that's fine. It's completely fine. 
Um, it was mentioned several times in that debate. This is the first time ever it's been mentioned in a presidential debate. President Obama mentioned it in a speech last spring. That was the first time ever an American president has ever used the words paid family leave. So this is like universal preschool. I know that this is, like, what, why are we even talking about this? But these are live issues for us. Um, and then education, this is the huge one. Um, you know, I can, I can blithely say we've got to improve the quality of teaching and learning in schools, but that's obviously a huge challenge. But for us, the three active ingredients boil down to recruiting, supporting, adequately compensating more effective teachers, implementing more rig rigorous curricula. So in the, for us, that's the common core. Um, here, I, I heard um, actually the current education minister make a proposal about having more rigorous curricula for all children in secondary school, upping the expectations of what all children will take in secondary school, which I thought was a pretty interesting proposal and is actually in this direction. Um, and then having higher expectations for um, low-achieving students and providing more support for them, which is another one that's much easier said than done because there are a lot of interventions out there and not many of them are effective. And so, you know, the pupil premium would be an example here of something that in principle provides more support for low-achieving, low-income, low-SES students. And um, I don't know if Lee will talk about uh, the toolkit and what the Educational Endowment Foundation is doing in terms of making available to educators information about what are evidence-based programs that they could use to raise achievement so that they're not you know, they're not wasting the money, but that they're using it on effective interventions. Just on teacher salaries, this is another place where the U.S. really stands out. Um, this is probably the most uh, depressing figure in the book. So we've had my favorite figure, we've had um, the most complicated figure, now we have the most depressing figure. Uh, this is what teachers are paid on average compared to other uh, people with tertiary education, university degree. Um, the UK, they're paid close to 100%. Australia, they're paid a little bit less than 100%. I was just in Australia. They're up in arms about teacher salaries, how underpaid they are relative to other people with university degrees. Canada, they're paid a little bit more than 100%. But look at the US. We pay our teachers on average two-thirds what they could earn in, uh, on average in other sectors given that they've got a university degree. So who's selecting into teaching in the United States, right? Who are we getting to be teachers? I mean, if we want to get you know, a better draw of people into the profession, we're going to have to pay higher, higher salaries. And boy, we have a long way to go. Um, OK, so I'm going to wrap up. Um, I think we've seen that children from low SES families are facing considerable challenges, more so in the U.S. than in the other countries. But to the extent that there's a runner-up to the U.S. in inequality, that runner-up would be the U.K. Um, especially in the U.S., though, the parents are not only lacking education, they're also they're younger, they live in less stable families, they have lower incomes. Um, and these inequalities then are augmented by the kind of safety net we have where we don't have paid parental leave, we don't have universal preschool, we don't have reliable income supports, we have some low-income families who have no income supports at all since welfare reform. Until recently, we didn't have universal health care, um, which is, you know, we tend to neglect in the states as being a really important part of the safety net, and especially for families with children. 
And then once they're in school, the children from the low SES families are in schools that are often segregated by income, and they're going to have unequal resources, um, including important inputs like teacher quality. So I didn't have a chance to talk about that, but we look at the distribution of teachers across schools. And in the U.S. especially, children are, the low SES children are especially likely to have the novice teachers. And the one thing we know about teachers, it's very hard to measure quality, but we do know that less experienced teachers are less effective teachers on average. Those are exactly not the teachers that you'd want to send into the classrooms with the, the children who have the greatest needs, but that's what we're doing in the states. Um, there is, I've been emphasizing the low SES children, but there's something going on in the middle as well. Um, the high, so we've got the high SES parents pulling away, not just from the bottom, but also the middle. People who are high SES not only are highly educated, they're more likely to be married, to have high incomes, and they're investing a large share of those resources in children. Uh, there's been a real run-up of investments in children by these affluent families, and so there's this kind of arms race of investments. High SES parents are very motivated to invest in their children, and they're especially able to do that. And I think actually you see the same phenomenon here, whether it's private lessons or private schools or these enrichment expenditures. Uh, you see families at the top really investing like crazy, and, and that's pulling them away not just from the low SES families but also the ones in the middle. And then you have the families in the middle, especially in the U.S., with this real middle-class squeeze because they're paying out of pocket for things like childcare. So especially in the U.S., uh, too many children are being left behind, but I think here as well. Um, and, you know, actually in all of our countries, a lot of children are being left behind. So clearly as rich nations, we can do better, we should do better. And so I'll leave you with these three key steps, which are to provide more support for early learning, raise family incomes for the poor and near poor by doing things like not cutting tax credits, um, and improving the quality of teaching and learning, and I'm sure you want to know many, many more things about this subject. So there are, you can go to the Russell Sage website and read that technical appendix, which I think you will find absolutely scintillating. I mean, we think it's fabulous. We, we greatly enjoy it. Um, or you could just you know, read the book, which uh, will be uh, brighter and breezier. And I think, has one, I think we were allowed to have one table in the book, but otherwise all the tables are in the appendix. Uh, but thank you, you've been a really attentive and lively audience, so thank you very much. Um, well, thank you very much, Jane, um, not just for um, a masterclass in how to present a huge amount of research um, um, in a way that um, is easy to grasp, but also a masterclass in how to finish your 44 slides with 10 seconds to spare, um, which is a lesson I know um, I need um, myself. Um, that's great um, and, and very inspiring for all of us. Um, I'm delighted that our, to open the discussion this evening um, is Lee Elliott Major from the uh, Sutton Trust. He's chief executive of the Sutton Trust there now. Um, and as I'm sure many of you in this audience will know, it's, the trust is dedicated to reducing, exactly to reducing the kind of gap which Jane and her colleagues describe in the book. Um, I think I first came across 
Lee when he was um, writing um, for Research Fortnight (laughs) as a journalist, um, and then actually as research director at uh, the Sutton Trust. Um, And therefore, he's directly responsible for having um, caused to happen to to fund quite a lot of the research that either is reported in the book or which forms the basis of part of their, their later work. Um, but he's also, and you will have heard him or seen him, um, as a passionate advocate of um, what needs to be done to address these kind of gaps and to try to make sure that this kind of research is listened to. Um, so we couldn't have anybody better to open the discussion than you, Lee. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Yes. very much, John. I've, got, I've been given five minutes, right, so I'll try and stick to that. You said um, seven. Seven minutes, okay. Um, I have to declare a, a, a conflict of interest because I'm a huge fan of Jane's, right, because she's an academic that not only is a brilliant academic but knows the policy context in not one but two countries very well, now four countries. So, um, you know, we, we go back quite a long way. And, in fact, we're going for dinner in New York next mm-hmm. week. So... Um, uh, so I'm going to be fairly positive here, but I'm going to also um, lay out some challenges, um, I think, in terms of uh, prompting discussion. I have to say it's an accomplishment, this book, in many ways. I've worked with all four academics. They're all very strong-willed. They're all a nightmare to, to, to have four of them in New York for one year and to come out with a coherent analysis is in itself uh, a huge accomplishment. Um, I think, you know, in, in an era where we are constantly looking for international comparisons, um, this is an incredibly rich analysis. Uh, and what's special about this analysis, of course, is it looks at the cohorts that track children through time. So, um, and, and I think that's something, you know, we, we, look, we, we have the PISA comparisons and other, and other international comparisons. What's special about this is it looks over, over time at how those gaps uh, emerge. I also think it's, it's great that you've looked at four countries with very similar uh, societies and cultural uh, backdrops. I think that's important because you can then maybe tentatively look at some of the public policies and maybe infer some causality. I know you two will tell me off of, of, of being too strong on that. Um, by the way, the gap at age five is, is 19 months. I, I, I have to say that because you two always tell me off by, by converting it into months development. But age, age five in the UK, we did a report in 2010 which still gets quoted mm-hmm. But the, the gap between low-income uh, and high-income children at age five is 19 months. I, I can't estimate what it would be in the U.S., but it's obviously bigger than mm-hmm. that, yes. depending on what assumptions yes, you make. Is. Uh, that, that is still quoted to this day, um, that, that, that figure. And in fact, it was that conversion to months development, Jane Liz, you know, that, that inspired the toolkit for schools that, that's now been used by two-thirds of schools, which is the Sutton Trust EF toolkit, which summarises all research uh, in education and converts uh, all standard deviations into months development. Anyway, that's another story. We can talk about that later. But I think it's been a huge impact in getting evidence out there to, to, to teachers. Um, the other thing, just quickly, I'll come on to the findings and then the policy uh, implications. I'll hurry up because I know John will, will, will cut in if I go over. I think it's good that you've had a proper policy discussion in this book. You know, too often, academics, I have to tell you, it's always an afterthought you know, on the last page. So thank you very much for that. In terms of findings, I think um, a number of, of shocking findings. Um, 
I think it's, it's really interesting. This is the first time I've seen evidence of any narrowing of gap, actually. Um, and, and that's an amazing thing for this country, actually, that we have seen a narrowing of the gap in the primary school years. I suspect that isn't actually happening right now, but it certainly happened uh, over the last decade. Um, Generally, um, those stats are quite, a, 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 I suppose, a humbling uh, finding in that they, I suppose, challenge, challenge our concepts of schools being this great social leveller. Uh, I think we can sort of say schools might uh, mitigate the, the, the sort of inequalities outside of, of the school gates, but as far as we know, they, don't really, they aren't really the, social, the great social level. I'll be interested in comments on that. But that's quite humbling, uh, that, that, those findings. I think the other thing is, you know, 70% of the gap is uh, age 14 is already there at uh, age 5. Okay. I mean, I think that's an amazing figure. I, I wouldn't have predicted that high. I think we all have to think about what we do pre-5 and post-5 Loads of discussion we have, don't we, as a, as a country about what happens in schools, probably less about what happens before children go to school. Um, I don't think we probably put in as much money preschool, even, even in this country, um, compared to what happens in school. So again, it'd be interesting people's views there. I just think it's an, it's an amazing stark figure. Um, I think the other thing that came across when I read the book uh, was just the, the nature of inequality in the US is so extreme. On, you know, you talked about television watching, teenage parents. Uh, it's multifaceted in, it, it, and deep-rooted in the US in a way I think even here uh, we can't uh, claim, claim to, to, to have. Um, sorry, I, I was going to say there's a Churchill quote. It's probably not Churchill. It's probably, it's probably not, but, but there's a Churchill quote. It's, four, it's two countries divided by common, common language. This is four countries uh, divided by common language, perhaps. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is that the public policies in these four countries are quite different. Um, and, and I come on to some of the, the, the proposals here in the book. Um, I think for all the things you say, I think I would welcome them all but I would say they're easier said than done. You know, um, so you talk about uh, early years. I think we'd all want more evidence-based parenting programs. The problem we find uh, in this country is that you can have a very good evidence-based program, but how you scale that up and implement that across all uh, regions, all schools, is, is a real challenge. It's not a trivial challenge. There's a tendency, I think, for us to think once we've got one of those, and there's very few, actually, evidence-based parenting programs, then that's the solution. But actually, what we're finding with the Education Doubt Foundation is that's really just the start of the process. To get practitioners all to take that on is not, not a trivial issue. So very welcome, but I think there are, there are challenges there. Uh, Pre-K, universal pre-K, of course, Uh, yes. And when I met, I have to name drop here, Arnie Duncan, the US Education Secretary, that was his number one priority. The problem in the US, of course, and I I think we were sort of better off than you in this way, is that your uh, political system is now so polarised and fractious that you worry about it. Actually, I'm not sure if it's a political system fit for the modern education system of today, but perhaps we can can talk about that uh, as well. I worry, too, in this country that we're becoming increasingly polarised, but but, but perhaps we can can, can talk uh, about that. Um, In in terms of the tax credits, yes, I I absolutely agree with you on that. I I think the, um, the problem when I talk to 
colleagues in Canada and Australia, of course, is that we go and seek solutions there. They're all worried that they're coming towards the UK, US on all these indicators. So, you, you know, so I think there is a... We, we, we have to be careful thinking that the nirvana is in, in Australia and Canada because they are worried, actually, that increasing inequality and all the things we worry about are starting to happen there. So, again, we have to be a bit careful. Um, so, welcome to... Sorry, the problem, I think, here, as you, as you picked up, Jane, is that, that they are under uh, attack. Um, in, in, in many ways, um, although there are arguments for and against, uh, again, which we could discuss. I think if you're going to tackle in, in, in social, low social mobility and equality, you have to do it inside and outside the school gates. I think, I think that's the, the thing. On teachers, yes, uh, of course, uh, we would love to have uh, improved teaching in the classroom. I do think it is the one thing in schools, you know, teacher quality is the one main factor within schools that affects children's attainment. Um, there, you know, it's an irony in many ways that the, the, the people we entrust uh, with the learning of our children have very poor professional learning, actually. Uh, and, and, and so that's, that's something I think we would all salute. I think we, we do have, uh, of course, national tests in the curriculum, so we're ahead of the, the US on that. I, when I go to the US, I always uh, I compare it to um, the clocks in England before the, the Industrial Revolution. You know, it was ten past nine in, in Bristol, it'd be five past nine in London, it might be quarter past nine in Manchester. It was the train that then got us to have, you know, constant universal time. When you go to America, the, the thing that's surprising for us is that, you know, you have one test in, 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 in you know, Manhattan, another test in Florida, and there isn't, a, a, you know, a universal... It's, to be honest, it's quite shocking. So um, I think I would very much salute that. I suspect, though, you're, again, you're going to be up against the, the political polarisation in the US. So just to finish, I think, you know... I get, I get lots of complaints for sort of always being the doom merchant about the UK, you know, that, that, that we have low social mobility. Uh, reading this book, I have to say, we come out sort of quite well um, in, in that the, the US is, is, is even more of a basket case in many ways in, in this, uh, uh, if I can put it that way. Um, but, so I, I sort of, I sort of fair, come out feeling fairly positive for this country, actually. You know, we had a prime minister who mentioned social mobility in his conference speech. It could have been Tony Blair speaking, you know. So there is at least a, a sort of political uh, discussion on this. And I think in a way that perhaps isn't happening in the U.S., I think you have to think about how you professionalise teachers and, and match that against the accountability in schools. So we have a very strong accountability system in this country. I think we do have some positive things nationally. We have the things like pupil premium funding for disadvantaged children. That's a national uh, initiative which, which I'd welcome. So, um, so listen, I, I think that, that there are... There are clearly challenges for us as a society. I, I worry about wealth and income inequality widening. But in general, from a public policy perspective, I, I, I think that, that, that for, for the UK, we, we are perhaps a, a more optimistic than, than, than you guys in, in the US. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you very much for ending on an optimistic note, um, which isn't always possible. Um, we've got a few minutes. Um, Jane um, will kindly um, answer questions. Um, if um, I think, have we got microphones to go around? Um, so we have a couple of microphones. We might take points um, three at a time. If you wouldn't mind um, saying who you are quickly, and if you wouldn't mind keeping what you're saying quite brief, um, and then we can get as many people in as possible, I think we might take three of you at once. So I've got one over there, a lady here, and then maybe the gentleman in the front row. Josh. And then Josh. Well, I'll come to the fourth of the second round. 
Thank you very much. My name is Elizabeth, and I'm very interested in the presence of children who have been identified with special educational needs and disabilities in your data set, potential moderator effects with that group, um, and how they might have a possibility for um, additional or exponential disadvantage across time. Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm Lizzie Lynch, currently working with a peer-to-peer mentoring charity called Franklin Scholars, which looks specifically at raising attainment and literacy. Um, I'm interested in the clash that I recognise um, between your point, Jane, in that the earlier the intervention, the better. Um, and then, Lee, you mentioning that actually schools can mitigate inequalities, but they can't necessarily um, completely solve them. And I'd be interested to hear both your points on that. Uh, hi, that was really enjoyable. Um, my name's Connor. I work for a think tank called the Resolution Foundation. Um, my question was probably a, a massive insult to your, uh, the, all the data work that you've already done on this, but within countries, obviously, there's lots of different systems and lots of different approaches, and within the UK, the, the story of, of London's uh, ability to kind of narrow the gap between free school meal and non-free school meal children has been really exceptional. So I just wondered, do you get into any of that, and is there more difference within countries as between countries, or how that factors in? Jane, can you take those and then we'll come for another round? Yeah, let me, let me start with the, I'll start with the end first. Um, we realized as soon as we started talking with people that um, there was as much variation within countries as there is across countries, and there's a really interesting story within countries. Um, you can pick out high-performing districts in each of the countries that, does actually, that do actually a really good job of dealing with low SES kids, and the progress that's been made in London you know, is a really good example. Um, yeah, I actually, I wrote more about that in Britain's War on Poverty. I have a whole chapter on the education reforms and sort of tracking the closing of the gap between children from free school meals and non-free school meals families. I'm persuaded they accomplished a tremendous amount under the new Labour government in terms of reducing inequalities. And so there's a really important story just within the UK and in particular within London. Um, we don't do much of that within the book. I think I think that's actually... Uh, for me, there's two follow-up projects. One would be to do more within countries, and the other would be to do more across a wider range of countries. So as Lee was saying, we deliberately compared to like to like. We deliberately picked four countries that have similar regimes, similar labor markets, similar sort of demographics. Um, but another way to go would be to reach out to some different countries. So that, those are a couple of directions to go. Yeah, I think any time you start stressing early childhood, you're then, there's a risk of, are you saying it's all early? And, you know, there's the Jim Heckman sort of case of, Jim not only says you've got to invest early, but he says, and it's ineffective to invest in adolescence, which I don't agree with. So I, I do want to be really clear that you've got to invest early and you've got to invest later. I think you've got to, you've got to narrow the gaps before school entry if schools are going to have a fighting chance. You've got to have children coming in more equally prepared. And then schools and communities then have to pile on to make sure that they continue to fight inequality. Because otherwise children are going to pull apart for all the reasons that we've talked about. Um, and then, yeah, children with, with special education needs and disabilities, uh, we, didn't, we didn't actually look at that a whole lot because it, it's... We looked at it enough to know that it's not driving the differences across the countries, but I think that would be a whole, that's a whole other follow-up project, is how do these things play out. Um, 
and certainly my, my colleague Janet Curry has done some work on this, whether um, having health challenges or having disabilities interacts with SES in different ways across different regime types in different countries. Um, so I think I'll end with that. Just to very quickly, John, on that, and I think the, the, the point about different regions is a really good one, actually. You know, and I, I, if, if there was a follow-up book, I, w- I was, you know, it'd be lovely to... It, it was interesting, Baltimore, you know, had the riots this year. They, they another study, Chessy et al., that, that day, I think they had the lowest social mobility or income mobility in the United States. And it's quite I- ironic, actually. I don't know if you saw the Wire series, which is a great portrayal of, of inequality uh, in Baltimore. Of course, the lead actor was, was played by an Englishman who was an Etonian, which I thought was a sort of irony uh, somehow in, in all that. But anyway, I, I do think the... Um, Yes, looking at it at a more sort of, you know, a, 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 particularly for the United States, which is such a huge country, would be, would be really good. Um, I think it must be true that everybody in this country goes to Eton, otherwise we wouldn't have quite such a large proportion of them running the country or, <laughs> or being mayor of London. Um, okay, so I think uh, I'm afraid I'm going to take about four who've already had hands up, uh, but can we start with Josh in the second row there? And then, and then Nikki in the front row, and then there's a gentleman... Just over there. Thanks. Josh Hillman from the Nuffield Foundation. Um, this probably goes beyond the cohort studies work that you did, but it might, uh, might have been addressed in the wider studies that you did um, uh, when you were in New York. But did you look at the issue of segregation by a socioeconomic group across the school system and differences between the countries on that? And related to that, any differences um, in segregation and their effect that that might have had on, on subsequent outcomes. I don't know if that was part of your wider analysis. And Thank you both so much for these, uh, these wonderful presentations. I'm Nikki Lacey. I work here at LSE. Um, and I wanted to really invite you, Jane, to, to say a little bit um, in response to Lee's point about America because one of the obvious takeaways from your, your fascinating data is, is the gap between... And, we, and the rest of us would like to know how to avoid going down that road that we're all frightened of. And I wondered... Lee mentioned polarisation, but you also mentioned the sort of fragmentation of the American system, which obviously produces a lot of regional variation. But I wondered if you had wanted to say anything about what you think are the sort of key things that are different about the States. Yeah, so the gentleman with the Pepsi. Hi there. My name is Sham. I'm a postgraduate student here at the LSE. I'm really interested in the narrative about what happens at home, like reading to kids and all that sort of stuff, uh, in particular because it presupposes a level of, let's say, literacy or English language skills in parents or time, or you know, even speaking from my own experience there. Um, what's the nexus to the outcomes in schools from those activities? And I'm, I'm really, I guess, worried about the burden shifting from everything that should um, happen in schools, particularly in the most disadvantaged contexts. So. Yeah. yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it's a big ask of parents. And, um, yeah, and I don't know how we make it easier on parents. I mean, maybe with, you know, sort of computers and iPads and technology, it's all getting easier. I mean, interestingly, since we finished the book, um, I've been looking at a newer cohort of children in the United States. Um, We were looking in the book at children who had entered kindergarten in the fall of 1998, and we're now looking at a cohort where they entered in 2010. So it's a much more contemporary cohort. 
And astoundingly, after years of increasing SES gaps in the United States that Sean Reardon has really clearly documented, we're seeing the SES gaps start to turn around and start diminishing. And as best we can tell, I mean, we're still working on this, it looks like it may be parenting practices. And it's low SES parents stepping up their reading to kids. The, the gap in computer ownership is narrowing. And the S, low SES kids, when you ask the, ask the parents, what are they doing with the computer? They're using it for these little reading games and these little math games. Um, that's where the narrowing seems to be. It's, it's somewhat similar to when people talk about SES disparities in health, when there's these new health innovations that improve health. They're adopted first by the high SES families, and then these health inequalities open up. And then gradually, these diffuse to the rest of the population, and then the health disparities close. Um, and that seems to be maybe what's happening with these kinds of inequalities. It's a very hopeful picture um, that we're sort of just trying to get a handle on. Um, but this, this is, there is a lot of work on this now in the states on ways to sort of give low SES parents supports, nudges. John was asking me before what's, you know, what's sort of going on with Hillary Clinton. She's got an initiative called Too Small to Fail, which is all about providing uh, parents with new babies. With They're given these really cute little onesies and T-shirts and blankets and books and CDs and things right in the delivery room. Um, to make it really easy for parents uh, to engage with their children. Yeah, all parents love to play with their children. It's just a matter of playing with them in a different way. Um, so at segregation by SES, we did look at that. Um, we've got it measured in different ways um, in different places. And, you know, there's segregation across schools and then within schools. So it's, it's a pretty complicated factor. We know that schools are becoming more segregated by income in the United States. Uh, because communities are becoming more segregated by income. And in some ways, we're kind of up against a dead end in the United States because there are some policy remedies that are not viable anymore. Um, forced integration, you know, through busing and things like that, is kind of a dead end for us. So there's a lot of talk about voluntary integration across socioeconomic lines, which, you know, how much of that is going to happen? So. Yes, yes. Yeah, so when we talk about the differential funding sum, and there's been, there's been quite a lot of activity at the state level in the states and local level to have compensatory funding to sort of equalize funding allocations across schools. And some very good work recently by Rucker Johnson and some colleagues on the federal compensatory funding, Title I, which has kind of gotten a bad reputation as you just give these money to the schools that have low-income pupils. You don't know what the schools are doing with it. But they've actually shown pretty clearly that schools that got the Title I funding had reduced gaps. Uh, so it looks like that was actually surprisingly effective. Um, so I was actually, you learn something when you write these kinds of books. You know, you sort of go back to the literature and have questions. And that was one of the things that I was surprised by. Um, yeah, in terms of why things are so tough in the U.S., it's, it's, a, very, it's a good question to go and have drinks over. Um, I mean, all I'll say about that is, you know, Lee mentioned the political gridlock and the polarization. It's really challenging for us. 
um, because it's stopping things in their track. You know, I, I mentioned the Common Core Standards. This is our effort to move towards something more like a national curriculum. This was developed by our governors, our 50 governors, and endorsed by all 50 governors. And now we've got some of the Republican governors backing away from it, just purely political reasons, purely political reasons. So it's just very challenging. I'm currently part of two different uh, bipartisan efforts uh, where people who identify as progressives and people who identify as conservatives are meeting together. It's a very painful process. <laughs> and we're trying to forge consensus ahead of the elections on a sort of common ground set of proposals. As I said, it's been extremely painful. But we're doing it because you've got to do something about the gridlock and the partisanship. So this is what this is what some of us as academics are trying to do to put to brand some things as cutting across the political spectrum to try to de unpoliticize them. Whether this will work, I don't know, but you know, you kinda of have to try. But that's probably a really good note to on which to have drinks. I don't know. Okay, no? thank you very or no, much. No, is that not? Well, I don't. I think that's. I, there's a lot of people want to get in. I was going to take two people go, go very, very quickly. Okay. Um, I think Michael was going to try to come in. I don't know whether to tell us about Baltimore. And there's a lady in the third row here. And then very quick responses from um, Lee and Jane. And then please carry on in the reception up on the fifth floor of the old building afterwards. So I'll explain more about that. So just very quickly, please. First off, thank you so much for coming. This was super informative. I'm a student at LSE. Uh, one question I have is, according to the Chetty data, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, has rates of social mobility on par with Denmark. So ton, like, lots of poor children move up into high incomes. Salt Lake City doesn't have a high minimum wage. It doesn't have universal pre-K. It doesn't have a lot of the policy prescriptions that we're talking about. And to me, it doesn't seem like maybe Salt Lake City people just read a lot to their kids. So I'm curious what you think might be going on yeah. there. I just revisited this for this um consensus group, political group, and the single, the single most important factor that they find that predicts social mobility at the community level is the share of families uh, that are single parent versus married. So the strongest predictor they have is the share of single parent families in the area very strongly predicts low social mobility. And the second most powerful is the share that's married predicts upward social mobility. Salt Lake City I think that's what the factor is there. Mm -hmm. They're virtually all married. Okay. Um, so it wouldn't have been the thing that I would highlight as a policy remedy, <laughs> frankly, but it was. When, I, I, it, there's a reason that I showed that graph about the share of children living with both right. biological right. parents or who had a teen parent. Or It's interesting because it raises kind of a cultural expansion. Oh, I know, I know. We'll have to carry on afterwards. And then finally, and then yeah. I'll come to Lee and then Jane. Um, I'm Fahir Osman, I'm a sixth former, and my question is, you talked about um, the share of parents who are immigrants and their SES, and I understand, as you mentioned already, that in Australia and Canada the situation is different because of their own immigration policy, but I'd like to ask about England and the United States and why there's such a disparity in parents who are immigrants being higher SES in the United Kingdom over the United States. Yeah, just one, one final bone to pick with you, Jane and, and Liz, on this. I mean, uh, 
the, the phrase low achieving, uh, equate, equating that with low income, I worry a little bit about that because some of these children are very high attaining. Oh, of course, yeah. And, and so it's all about them fulfilling their potential. So I think there's, we, we tend, and I do this as well, we tend to sort of equate low income with low achieving. I just think we have to be a bit careful with the story. Sorry to end on a sort of... But I, I do think we have to be careful. And there are possibly different policies for the kids that you showed us, that the ones that are actually start very high yeah. and then lose ground. So that, 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 that's a nuance perhaps we, we, we miss. Um, that's a good point. I, re- I heard myself saying that. I said something about low achieving, low income, and I realized I was equating them, and we don't do that in the book. We had to be really careful in the writing. Are we recommending something for low income families? That would be the case with tax credits. But when we're talking about higher expectations and higher standards, that's for low achieving children, regardless of their SES group. And we had to really be careful, always thinking about for which group are we making this recommendation. So I realized I sort of slipped as I was you know, racing through the slides. But I don't think we have, hopefully, we don't have slips like that in the book. Um, yeah, and then around the immigrant families, we have a, we have a very um, high share of low-educated immigrant families in the states, uh, many of them coming from Mexico. And just, just given the education system in Mexico, they have not completed high school. So this, this is a, a group that's very low-educated. But it's true, our, our second largest immigrant group is families from China. And though, although the stereotype would be that families from China are highly educated, that's actually not the case in the United States. Among, so you, it sounds like you know that. So it's a very bimodal distribution. There's some very high-educated Chinese immigrants and some very low-educated Chinese immigrants. So um, we... I'll say that we did in the U.S. context, uh, we were asked how much of the U.S. unique position had to do with our demographics, and we were asked what the picture would look like if um, we could wave a magic wand and there were no children of color in our sample. So if there were no, I know, yeah, if there were no children who were black, Hispanic, or born outside the United States, and I said, well, this is not a thought experiment one could have. I mean, we're, we're talking about the inequality within the United States as they exist. But um, we were asked to do this, so we did this. So we, we limited our analysis then just to white, non-Hispanic children born in the United States without immigrant parents. And we have more inequality than other countries even within that population. Do you know what I mean? So that turned out actually to be a pretty good exercise to have done because it kind of just ruled out that explanation. Yeah? Um, so I was glad that we did it, but that's, that's one of the many wonderful tables in the appendix. That It doesn't make it into the book because it isn't what we're doing in the book, but um, I was actually really glad we did it. Well, Jane, thank you and Lee. Thank you both very much indeed. For-